Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Wow, that's a lot of breathing from Pastor Laura. Okay. That's a little bit better, hopefully. Mark, is that still okay? Beautiful. Okay, well, this morning is the Sunday. I confess, this is the Sunday I wait for all year. This is my maybe favorite Sunday of the year outside of Christmas and Easter because I love the Great Commission. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This morning really is a celebration because our God, the same God who hung on the cross, who rose again and defeated death, who brought us good news and life, now invites us to go out and join him on his mission to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Amen, yeah. So this morning we are going to be looking at Matthew 9. And our hope is as we look at this, this is a wobbly stand, we will learn a little bit more about the Great Commission. Specifically, my hope is that we will learn as Jesus sent out his disciples, which wasn't just the 12, the Greek tells us it was every disciple, the language is inclusive, it means all of us that follow Jesus. As Jesus sent out his disciples and told them to preach the good news and to make disciples, our question today as we look at these verses is, what are we sent out with? What compels us as we go out? And what can we expect to find when we live faithfully into this calling of the Great Commission that Jesus has put on our lives? So brothers and sisters, let's read Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be at the very end of that chapter, starting in verse 35. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Now this morning we're only reading a portion of Matthew. But if you were sitting down and reading from the beginning of Matthew up until this point, you would have noticed something. Well, you may, you may have noticed something. If you're like me, you may need to have read it ten times before you noticed. But the observant people in this crowd would have noticed something. And you would have noticed that the verse that we just began with, verse 35, is almost word for word the exact same verse that we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It's right there. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So this is what caps this portion of scripture. And then this portion of scripture ends again with this verse, almost word for word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. So instead of Galilee here, we get all the towns and villages. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Almost verbatim, right? 
This is the author telling us that this section from the first end cap in Matthew 4, verse 23, to the second end cap in Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38, this is the author telling us using a literary technique that these are bookends to all of the passage in between. That means when we look at this teaching today, we have to look at the greater context of the teaching too, which means that from the end of Matthew chapter 4 to the end of Matthew chapter 9, where these bookends are found, are to be looked at as one cohesive whole. So let's look. Turn to Matthew 24. If you don't have your Bibles open, now is a great time to get them open. They're in the pew right in front of you. Turn to Matthew 4, look at 23, and we see the same chunk. Jesus going throughout, healing and teaching the good news of the kingdom. And then we get into Matthew chapter 5. What do we see in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? What do we know about this section of scripture? The Beatitudes, yes. What else? What is this part of a larger, a larger teaching? What's it called? Sermon on the, Mount. the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, absolutely. Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the first part of this book-ended passage, is the Sermon on the Mount. Some of us who went to Israel may recall sitting on that beautiful hill, reciting this to one another. This is Jesus' authoritative words about what the kingdom of God, what living in the kingdom of God looks like. This is the first chunk of what we get, authoritative teachings about how to live out the kingdom of God right here on earth. And then we get into Matthew chapters 8 and 9, so you can turn with me. And I want to invite you just to look, if, if your Bible has headings, just to look maybe at, at the headings of of those, of those different chunks of scripture throughout chapters 8 and 9. And what do we see Jesus doing? Miracles. Miracles, Rob, absolutely. Miracles. Jesus is healing the blind. He's healing the lame, the mute, the deaf, the paralyzed. Jesus is calming the storm. Jesus is raising the dead. What we see in this chunk of chapters, 8 and 9, are Jesus' authoritative living on what it looks like to live out the kingdom of God. So what we have bookended here are Jesus' authoritative teachings on what it looks like in the kingdom of God, and then Jesus going and living what it looks like to be living in the kingdom of God. This is significant. It's significant that our verses pick up where these bookends end. Jesus has shown us what it means to live and to speak with the gospel news of the kingdom of God. But he doesn't stop there. He sends his disciples out. In these verses, the harvest is plentiful. He has shown them what it looks like. He has lived for them what it looks like. He has spoken what it looks like. And now he is saying, go disciples. Take the proof of the kingdom and bring it to the world. Bring it out into the harvest. And that is what we see first. What we can expect to go out with is the proof of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, you have been sitting here week after week, year after year, 
You have been taught the teachings of Jesus Christ. Hey, we did a whole series on the Sermon of the Mount one summer. Do you remember that? You have heard these life-giving kingdom words. You have seen through this community in your lives what Jesus Christ has done, what it looks like to live out the reality of the kingdom of God. And now what we see here is God saying, you, disciple, go bring the proof of the kingdom to the rest of the world. Jesus tells us in John, I want to get the reference right, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that they will do even greater works than he will. Jesus is saying, you've seen the kingdom, you've heard about it, you've been taught, you've been fed. Now go do it. Go live it. In the next chapter, in Matthew 10, it says Jesus sends them out with his authority. He sends his disciples out with their, his authority. And they come back telling Jesus about how they healed people, about how they brought the good news of the kingdom, and they brought it in such a way that even Herod, Herod heard about it and was stirred and wanted to know what's going on. That's who we are. That's why we celebrate this morning, because we have also been given the name and the power of Jesus when we put our faith in him. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and so now I send you out. We see, we hear, we taste the kingdom, not to just keep it for ourselves, but to go and live it out, that proof of the kingdom with Jesus' authority, with his power in the world. That is who we are, and that is what we take with us when we go. And if we continue to look in this passage, we not only see that we go with the proof of the kingdom, but we see how we are compelled to go. We see what drives us to go. And we see that when we look at verse 36. Would you look back there with me? Verse 36 says this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd compassion. Jesus looks out on this crowd, the Israelite crowd he's looking at, and he sees a group of harassed and helpless people. And it says that Jesus has compassion on them. The Greek word that's used here refers to deep feelings in the inner heart and affections. It means to be moved in the inner parts of your being. Because Jesus looks out and sees not what I see here, a group of people who know the love, the power, the healing of Jesus Christ and the good news of the kingdom. Jesus looked out and saw a very different crowd. A crowd that is harassed, is helpless, is lost, is broken. He compares them to what? You know, you can say it louder, it's okay. Sheep, yeah. He compares them to sheep. Sheep without what? Without a shepherd. What happens to sheep without a shepherd? They get lost. They, yeah, they die. They, let's, not, let's not sugarcoat it. Yesterday at our leadership retreat, Bob showed us, showed us this horrific video of a wolf eating a sheep. So we know, we have this very vivid image in our head. 
we should, it was off of biblical teaching, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> but this is, this is what we see Jesus looking at, it's breaking his heart. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knows spiritually these people are lost. They are dead. And his compassion, his love for them moves him. Why were they shepherdless? They had shepherds. The teachers and the Jewish leaders of the day, people in the paths of righteousness, like scripture tells us, Jesus will lead his sheep in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Instead of doing what they were called to do, doing that, taking care of the sheep, feeding them, tending them, pointing to the righteous paths to follow God, they were heaping religious, legalistic burdens on the people. These were not shepherds. Those that were called to shepherd Israel had turned into the very wolves that were coming after them. And Jesus sees the situation, and although these sheep want to be fed physically, these sheep want to see the, spirit, the, the miracles of healing physically, Jesus sees a greater need. He sees the spiritual healing, the spiritual hunger that needs to be filled, and he is moved with compassion out of his love for the sheep. He is moved so deeply with compassion. He is moved all the way to the cross. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep because of his love and his compassion as the good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about the Great Commission and reaching out to the lost, when you look at the world around you, are you moved by the same compelling compassion that Jesus had for the lost, harassed, and broken sheep? Do you have that same kind of stirring in your soul, that same kind of longing that compels you, the compassion of the shepherd to reach the lost with the good news and to bring them into the fold? I have found that oftentimes the people who have this compassion, who share the compassion of the shepherd, are people who remember well their day as a lost sheep. It's beautiful, isn't it? On Sundays to come into this place, to worship together, to sing praises to our God, to be reminded of our promises and our peace we have when we put our faith in the saving work of Jesus. But there are so many people in this world that don't have that peace, that hope, that are lost. And once upon a time, little flock, that was you. No one started out in these seats. Not one of us started out saved. We know that scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was one time when you were lonely, when you were angry, when you were spiritually hungry, when you were isolated and broken and hopeless and you did not know why. And then the shepherd, in his compassion and his love towards you, came and brought you into the pen. And you sit under that love and promise and protection. I find that the people who are compelled with compassion to go out and bring the good news of the shepherd and the pen are those who well remember the days when they were lost sheep being circled by hungry wolves. Do you remember those days? If you're not compelled with compassion to go out, maybe it's time 
to sit and do some reflecting on what Jesus has done for you. And if that doesn't compel you, how about your love for Jesus? You are in this room, most of you, I hope, because you have been saved by Jesus and you have a deep, unshakable love for him. Scripture tells us that our love for the compassionate shepherd should drive us to care for the sheep. In John 21, after Peter has denied Jesus three separate times, Christ rises and he approaches Peter. And he asks Peter three separate times. That's not a coincidence, right? What does he ask Peter? Peter, do you love me? Three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And what is Jesus' response each time Peter says yes? Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Peter, if you love me, what I am calling you to do is to care for the flock. If the brokenness of the world doesn't compel you to go, let your love for Christ compel you to go. That is what we see when we love Christ. The natural response to that is to feed and care for the flock of Jesus Christ. So when we go out, flock, we go out to fulfill the Great Commission, compelled by the compassion and the love of the Good Shepherd. And the final question we want to ask this morning as we talk about the Great Commission, as we remember that we go out with a proof of the kingdom, we are compelled with the compassion and the love of the Good Shepherd, is this. What can we expect to find when we go out to faithfully live out the Great Commission? Read this last verse with me again. Verses 37 and 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus looked out at the crowd, the harassed sheep, and he saw a harvest field. He saw a spiritual harvest that was ready for the reaping. And what is the word he used to describe the harvest? You know this. What is the word? It starts with a P he just used to describe the harvest. Plentiful, yes. Good morning, Orchard Hill, yes. He used the word plentiful. I think so often, if we are honest with ourselves, we look around the world, brother and sister, Christians, and we don't see a plentiful harvest. We have this, this bad habit of living with a scarcity mentality. Instead of seeing a plentiful harvest ready, ripe for the picking, we see angry people. We see fear, don't we? Ooh. If I share them with them Jesus, I don't know if I'm going to get to keep that relationship. They might reject me. They might slam the door in my face. This might not end well for my career if I share the gospel with my boss. I don't know that people really want Jesus. The world's pretty evil and broken, right? I don't know. 
I think we're guilty, I'm guilty too, of not living expectantly, of looking at the field and instead of seeing this glorious, bountiful harvest that our Lord sees, we see a couple broken stalks, an empty field with maybe one or two that were like, hmm, I think God is doing something over there. But that's not the picture that Jesus gives us. Jesus, what scripture tells us, the Lord of the harvest, okay? More authority. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, looks and he sees a plentiful field. When was the last time you went out to share the good news of Jesus Christ and you expected someone to put their faith in Jesus? I hope that's how we go out every time we go to share the good news of Jesus Christ because this is the picture that Jesus gives us. A harvest that's ripe for the picking. Have you driven down four mile lately? Have you seen the apples? They're ready, aren't they? I'm ready. I love those apples. They are ready. We don't look and think, oh, I'm not going apple picking this year. There's nothing out there. There's maybe one or two. We look and we call our friends and we say, hey, let's go take our fall pictures in the sunflower field and get apples and make our applesauce. We're ready and we're excited. We had a party one year, some of us from Orchard Hill, an apple party. It was great. We were ready for that, for the apple-oriented life. It was fantastic. That is what Jesus sees when he looks out. He sees we're ready. The harvest is there, brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us that God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. It's time for us to change our expectation, church, of what we're going to find when we are faithful to obey the Great Commission. And what about now? Well, we know that Jesus moves on with his last words to his disciples in Matthew and told them to make disciples. Nations, Nations absolutely. He goes on to tell them, make disciples of all nations. So we know that the harvest is not just the Israelites. We know the harvest has been expanded to be people from all nations. So is the harvest still plentiful? Well, we know in Revelation 7, it tells us this. It tells us that they're around, um, when, when John has this vision of what it's going to be like, he says there's a great number of people from every nation, from all tribes, and people from all languages standing before the throne of the Lamb. Okay. <laughs> all nations. That word is better translated as people groups, we know. So when we ask the question, is the harvest still plentiful? If you look at the facts around the world, and you think about the unreached with the gospel, that's the places with less than 1% who know Jesus, there are 7,000 people groups, nations, that are still considered unreached with the gospel. In the world today, there are over 3 billion people that fall into that category of unreached with the gospel. So you tell me, is the harvest still plentiful? Matthew 24, 14 tells us the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The gospel will be preached to every nation. Is the harvest still plentiful? We went door to door the Saturday before kickoff and invited our neighbors to come to Orchard Hill 
to experience what God is doing and who he is. And yes, we had doors slammed in our faces. We met Satanists. We met Buddhists who wanted nothing to do with us. We met people who laughed us off. But we also had open arms. Kurt and I were invited into the house of a family who's the, the matriarch of the family was facing cancer, and they asked us to come in, and they asked us to lay hands on her and to pray over her. We had conversations with people who had just lost loved ones to suicide, and we were able to share the good news and the love of Jesus Christ with them. We had people from the neighborhood that we invited show up here on Sunday. I hope you're here right now. You are an example of the plentiful harvest. Do you remember City Fest that happened a few years ago? When, when the Palau Association came, downtown Grand Rapids, and Mandisa came and sang, and, and um, the Palau brothers shared their testimony, 1,800 people put their faith in Jesus Christ that weekend, and that's in Grand Rapids alone. They are doing these festivals all over the world to every tribe, tongue, and nation. I know you have a neighbor, a brother, a sister, a coworker, a classmate, a teammate, a friend, a spouse that doesn't know Jesus or hasn't put their trust in him. The harvest is plentiful. Not just then, not just the crowds that Jesus looked over, but the crowds we live with, the world we look over every single day today. Brothers and sisters, scripture, our life, the testimony of what God is doing in the world continues to give us that promise that when we go out, we will find that the harvest is plentiful. Maybe you are the plentiful harvest. Whether you sat in this pew a thousand times or you're listening online, maybe you've had a hard heart toward God or questions or doubts, but maybe this morning God is telling you, you are my plentiful harvest. If that is you, don't leave this place without coming and talking to me or one of us. God is moving, brothers and sisters. We know the harvest is plentiful, and he will be faithful to show us that. We know that when we go out, we go in his power. So my question for you is, are you harvesting? The harvest is happening everywhere. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every classroom, every church, every street. The harvest is happening, and it's plentiful. Are you harvesting? Jesus looked at the faces, at the masses, and he saw an urgent need for laborers. We know those apples on Four Mile are going to get picked, right? Jesus looked at a harvest and said, we need more workers. Pray. This is one of the few places you will find in Scripture that Jesus doesn't just give general principles about what to pray for. Jesus gives something very tangible and very specific and says, this is a need, pray. Now we know God is going to be faithful. We know he's going to be faithful to fulfill that need. But you are the answer to that prayer. This room, and I see the power through the Holy Spirit, through lives transformed, the proof of the kingdom that is ready to go out, compelled by the good shepherd, as the answer to the prayer that Jesus told his disciples 2,000 years ago to pray. We are the answer, Orchard Hill. And our brothers and sisters around the world that we gather with to have communion today, we are the answer. You are the answer to prayer. Are you harvesting? We're facing a labor shortage in our country right now. We're facing a labor shortage in Michigan. 
A new taco place just opened up down the road from Kurt and I, and they closed again three days later because they didn't have enough staff. Now, I was pretty upset because I like Stan's tacos, but I can get over that, right? The labor shortage we're talking about is not Laura is upset because Stan's Tacos is closed for a few weeks. The labor shortage we're talking about is a spiritual harvest that leads to everlasting life. Are you harvesting, brothers and sisters? I've heard Christians during this labor shortage say, people just need to get up and get a job. Well, Christian, get up and get a job. <laughs> You've got one to do. The Savior appointed you. He chose you to go and declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not an obligation. When you look at that field, you don't see an obligation. You see the joy of the harvest that the Lord of the harvest has called you into. So brother and sister, my question I leave you with today is, are you harvesting? Because at the end of the day, we know how the story ends. The Lord of the harvest returns. And before him will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation united in worship of our good God because our God saves. Our God is good. And our God alone, brothers and sisters, is worthy. So let us go out into that harvest, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ and making disciples, and let us expect to see the plentiful harvest abound. Amen. Amen. Jesus, we come to you this morning just in awe of who you are and of what you have done, gracious Lord. You and your grace and mercy have not only saved us, Father, but you have called us into the harvest field with you. You have given us the everlasting joy and reward and blessing of being a co-laborer with Christ and making him known and seeing lives transformed and seeing people come to know the true goodness that can be found nowhere else but in God. Lord, thank you. Brothers and sisters, I just want to invite you with your eyes closed to maybe place a hand if, if you came with a person next to you on the person next to you or to extend a hand of blessing towards someone near you. Because, Father, right now what we're going to do is we are going to pray for laborers to be sent. That is what you say in your word. You told your disciples to pray that laborers would be sent into the harvest. And Lord, our prayer over one another as Orchard Hill Church right now in the power of your Holy Spirit is that we would go with the boldness of your spirit. We would go with the proof of the kingdom, compelled by the love and the compassion of the shepherd to see a bountiful harvest as we share the good news that Christ has died Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Empower us, Lord. Empower our brothers and sisters. Give us a spirit of boldness, of power, and love to go out and do the work, live the calling, be the people you have named us and called us to be. And Lord, would you show us a plentiful harvest. We love you, Heavenly Father. We thank you. And this is our prayer to you for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Brothers and sisters, this morning we come to the table. The table of the King, the Lord of the harvest. And we are only here because we have first been loved by him. We come to this table as sheep of his pen, chosen, adopted, and named children of God because the good shepherd brought us in. And he didn't stop with us. We come around this table with brothers and sisters all over the globe, celebrating across the world communion today. What a picture of the kingdom of God that is, isn't it? And when we come to this table, we come remembering the good news of what our God did for us. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. But we also come to this table to be strengthened in his body and in his blood, to be nourished spiritually and supernaturally, to do the work in the harvest that Christ has called us to do. So this is our place. This is where we remember who we are and whose we are. And this is where we remember what he has unleashed us to do and what he promises he will strengthen us to do. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. All who profess faith in Jesus Christ are welcome at this table. And as we come with our brothers and sisters around the world to this table of the King, I want to invite you, just for a few seconds, we're going to bow our head as the worship team plays, just to get your hearts right before God. We don't want anything standing between us and God as we come to this table. So if there's sin you need to confess, if there's anger you need to lay down, we just want to open up the space for the next 20, 30 seconds for you to just get your hearts right before the Lord. So let's do that now. God, you alone are worthy. You have heard our hearts today. As we come to this table, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for your empowerment, God. Fill us at this table, physically and supernaturally, to be able to be the people you have named us and called us to be as we seek to go out and share this good news Make this table bigger with lost sheep coming into your pen. You alone, Lord, are worthy. We remember what you did for us. We praise you for your sacrifice, and we thank you for the promise of eternal life for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we love you. Meet us here in this space, we pray, and let this be for your honor and your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. 
and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And in the same way, after they had eaten, he took the cup. He poured it out saying, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Thank you.